0: You are listening to the message by Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. Hey guys, there's no outline. <laughs> I'm totally the polar opposite of Stephen. We did actually both go to the same Bible school and took the same classes together. In fact, I made higher grades than he did. (laughs) Even on my preaching, I made better scores than he did, but that's not the point. The point is that everybody has their own style of doing things, so there's no outline, there's no props. I don't have a song and a dance or anything to go along with it, it's just me. So I'm gonna share in my own style And when I started on Thursday night with the idea that, okay, I got to kind of get some thoughts together. And so, um, you know, over the past few years, when I've prepared messages in Cambodia, I use my iPad and I know where all my tools are on my iPad, and so it's easy. But um, this last month in October, I gave my iPad away to a pastor in Cambodia who really needed it. I mean, his was the first generation one it was kind of a brick and it was really slow you know like when he would go somewhere and try to get online it was like dial up like in the old days you know it just took forever to be able to connect to anything because it was so old so I brought him my ipad so when I went to go sit down to prepare my message I thought oh man that's how I do it you know I don't have my ipad so Pulled out my phone and I got this beautiful new iPhone 11. This is going to be awesome. So I sit in my nice leather chair in the living room and air conditioner is on and I'm comfortable. And I think, okay, Lord, let me open my Bible program here and see what it is I'm going to say. And then all of a sudden, the Instagram little thing comes up. Pravina just posted a new picture, so well, I had to go see what it is because I'm a grandma and, you know, that's like thrilling to me to see how much Mateo is growing and the kind of things he can do and the cute stuff like, you know, that Ricky tells me about what's going on in the baby's life. So, you know, I went over to Instagram and took a look and, oh, so cute. So I had to say something, but not on the post. I had to message Praveena. Oh, and Praveena happened to be awake. So we're chatting about things and then I'm chatting with Ricky and then I thought, oh, Germany, yeah let me see what Tim's up to and Tim happened to message me right back and he had to tell me everything that was going on with his baby and oh it's so cute what else and oh and he's on paternity leave and he needs prayer oh I better pray about that right now because that's important he needs to get that passport for that baby before Brexit happens so I, I could be tomorrow I don't know I better get on that It's all busy about God's kingdom stuff. And I thought, yeah, you know, Berlin. I like Berlin. I've been to Berlin. Berlin's nice. I remember going to Berlin years and years ago when I was a kid, and it was divided. And the last time I went, it was a big open city. And oh, yeah, Berlin. Yeah, my friend from Cambodia, she's living in Berlin now. Oh, Germany. Yeah, you know, I have a long history with Germany. And I started thinking, yeah, I remember back in the '80s, in my home church in New Orleans, Stephen and I were praying about being missionaries in Mexico, and my pastor wasn't having it. He just thought, "Nah, you know, I don't want to lose you guys because you're such an important part of the church here. Sending you guys off to Mexico, man, you know, I've invested a lot. I don't really want that to happen. So let's just put that on the back burner." And that's not what we wanted, and it's not what we felt like the Holy Spirit wanted for us. So we prayed and we said, God, bring him a sign. You know, like the kind of thing, you know, like a fleece, like something real and tangible that undeniable in front of the whole church so he can't get away from it. And so a missionary, we love when the missionaries would come because all missionaries, it's like we have a thing with each other. Like, yeah, yeah you know, we're going to get everyone to be missions minded. So, this guy comes and he happens to be a missionary from Germany. And he preaches the whole sermon, and I was waiting for our word. You know, where's our word? You know, we've got to have a word. He's going to call us out in front of everyone, and it didn't happen. And the altar call already went by and nothing. I thought, man, missionary from Germany. I need somebody really anointed. Bring someone from Mexico or, you know, from India, somebody who's really. You know, Germany, and then he went to the back of the church. Like we used to have tapes in those days, and at the end of the service, for you two who are too young, tapes are like um, an M, you know, like a like a you know like a file, but it's on a physical thing, and then you play it, and then you rewind it, which is a, a whole other button. Okay, but they would sell those at the end of the service. So he was in the back, and he was playing with the tapes, and he said, and all of a sudden, it was like the Holy Spirit grabbed him by the neck and drug him back up to the front of the church again, and he grabbed the microphone, and he said, God told me that there's somebody here tonight, and he's got a calling for you south of the border, and he pointed to Stephen, and Stephen jumped so high, I mean, like, you didn't think white boys can't jump. I mean, that's like the thing that we always say, but he jumped. I mean, he jumped so high, and everyone was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, south of the border, that means Mexico, right? Well, yeah, that's what we say. That's what Mexico is. Okay, so I thought, man, I wonder how he's doing. What was his name? Buzz, buzz something. Look him up on Facebook, and oh, guess what? He happens to remember that night, too. So we talked about that, and he had posted about it on his face, And he had pictures of his house in Germany. And then the next thing you know, you know, like a lot of time is going by, and I haven't prepared a single thing or had a single thought. Albeit it was all good God stuff, I still didn't have a message. But then I got another little ping, and the little ping was a lady that said, hey, you're collecting Legos, is it, for Cambodia? I said, yes, Legos. So other kind of bricks? No. Soft toys? No, only Legos. I just want Legos. OK. Well, I have a lot of them, so I'm going to have to bring them by in my car. you Are going to be home? Yeah, I'm going to be home. OK. Go downstairs and wait for me, and I'm going to bring them by. All right. You yeah, know, kingdom work. Go downstairs, get my Legos, bring them all back up. Well, now i got to look at them, because, you know, Big donation for kids in Cambodia. I gotta look at them. I gotta take pictures. I gotta send them to people and show them how cool it is. Message Michael and ask what this little doohickey means and what does it do. And you know, just and then the whole night was gone. I'm sleepy. All right. I'll wait till the next day. So it's okay. I'm gonna just go ahead, go to sleep, wake up fresh the next morning, and then. I know I'm gonna put my phone away because the phone, this is a window to another world and it just distracts you, so I'm smart. But get on that computer because it's where Steven does most of his messages and I'm gonna just use his tools that are there because it's already there, it's set up. I, you know, I, It can't be that hard, I can figure it out. All right, next morning, get up, sit at the computer. <laughs> Uh, I kind of need a cup of tea. Well, let me go get the tea. All right, get the tea, come back, sit down. And bing! Somebody, I thought I closed everything. I had everything closed, but I forgot one little thing, and somebody had asked me about Kanye West what do you think about Kanye? And it just so happens that he was in Stephen's home state that very day. And he was um, doing the Sunday service thing that he does there in Baton Rouge. So I said, (laughs) about Kanye, let me see. I got people that are there right now. I'll get some live video. And wait a minute, I'm actually not 100% sure on everything. So I'm going to go and watch the David Letterman special that he talks on and see what it is that he has to say. Make sure he says everything right because from my perspective, it it looks pretty genius. I mean, yes, he said he gave his life to Jesus. He certainly is demonstrating that he's given his life to Jesus and he's tricking everyone all over the world to say Jesus is king by making it the title of his album. So I think that's pretty good. So, all right, I get all my information on Kanye and I give my Educated answer about Kanye and, all right, I did some more kingdom work. And then I realized hours have gone by and I still haven't really gotten anything done towards my message. So things can just be that way. You can get really distracted really easy and not really pay attention to the task at hand even though you're busy doing God's work. So I said, okay, um, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out my Bible Bible because when you read the Bible Bible with all the words and, you know, there's nothing to distract you. There's no pings and there's no noise and you can just really focus. And not only can I really focus, but I can't actually see the words anymore because I'm kind of old now. So I have to actually put on my glasses and it's symbolic of focusing because I literally have to focus and pay attention to what it is I'm reading. So I thought, okay, that I can do. I can focus, and I can pay attention, and um, that's really good, so I'm going to do that. So I open up the Bible, and I hear the voice of the Lord say to me, I'm the God of the big, and I'm the God of the small. And I think, well, I don't really know if I have a scripture that goes with that, but okay, let me think about that for a second. And then I was reminded of somebody so small, that her name is never even mentioned. And I like the women characters in the Bible, because I'm a girl, you know, and that's, it's just something that I always like to pull out something rich about a woman in the Bible, because I think it's kind of cool. So I said, all right, Lord, you know, I'm thinking, and I'm thinking about the woman so small, that her name is never mentioned, but the action of what took place in her life is a story that everybody knows about. And I'm talking about Second Kings 4, the widow, and the oil. And it's a story that everybody knows. Children learn it in Bible school, and adults rehearse it in their mind as you know, they need provision in their life and they think about the widow and they think about, you know, the oil and the vessels and all of the things associated with it. But something that you don't always take into account is that just one chapter before Elisha, the prophet involved in this miracle, is meeting with heads of state. We have war between, you know, Israel and Judah and Samaria and, um, Philistines. So he's meeting together with these people and he's helping to come to a treaty kind of agreement. Three of the four don't want to cooperate, which is always how it is. And so as far as we know, he's not an engineer. He has no talent in this area, but God gives him a very specific plan and says, okay, so this is what you're going to do. They're not going to listen, but we're going to give victory to Judah. So what you're going to do is you're going to tell them to go and dig trenches, and they're going to dig trenches, and without there being rain, the valley is going to be flooded because of these trenches. Now, I don't know that he had any skill in irrigation or that this was something natural or if the Holy Spirit told him something supernatural, but whatever it is, it worked. And this is kind of an obscure story and that most of you are looking at me like, huh, what are you even talking about? Now, this is huge. This is something that affected four kingdoms. And you're not even sure which of the prophets it was that led it. Was it Elijah or Elisha? I don't remember. Because it's such a thing in your mind that doesn't stick, but it was something big. Because he's God of the big. But what we really remember is when he's God of the small, because that's when he's talking to us in an intimate way. And so what he does in the next chapter, chapter four, I'm going to go there, uh, 2 Kings chapter four, and it says, now a certain woman, I'm going to put my glasses on so that I can actually see all of the words. Now, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord and that the, creator has come, uh, the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now, this is something that happened quite a lot in those days. If you weren't able to pay your debt, the loan shark comes to your house and he, accessi- he, you know, he does a... Uh, an evaluation of what you have that's worth anything. He goes around with notes and he writes on things and he puts a note on it and says, I'm repossessing that because that's worth something. You owe me, let's just say, you know, $5,000. You owe me $5,000. You have nothing here worth $5,000 so I have no choice but to take your sons and they're going to have to be my slaves until it's worked off. Now, this doesn't mean that he was taking them away to a faraway land and she was never going to see them again. But it does mean that it totally cut off the possibility of her having an income for herself because she would have been counting on her sons to be her income. So not only is he taking her sons as slaves and they have no choice or control over their lives and we don't know for how long that season was going to be, but it cuts off her own income. So... It's a desperate thing. It's desperate. So from her perspective, this isn't any less of a problem than what the kings in the chapter before were experiencing. They weren't getting their rightful whatever, and they were upset about it, and they needed the prophet to come and settle this matter of a head of state. But she needed something done for her from God, that was just as important to her because to her, this was her whole world. So, as I think about this lady and I think about the situation that she's in, um, I'm reminded of when I was a, a little kid. I was about six years old and this major thing happens in our life. I realized my mother's not American Uh, Now, uh, this sounds crazy, but when you're a little kid, you don't really have the concept always of nationalities and people coming from other places. Now, you all in Singapore are a lot more multicultural, but where I grew up in New York, pretty much I thought everybody was American because everyone around me was. Even if they spoke a different language at home, I didn't really have the full understanding that they came from somewhere else. So my father, who was something called an outside machinist, he worked in a shipyard. He was in shipping. So he never taught. He was never in a classroom atmosphere. So this whole idea that he was going to England to teach classes was something very foreign to me. And my mom said, well, that's where I'm from. I'm from London. And I always knew my mom talked funny. You know, she had a weird accent and she couldn't say things right and, you know, sometimes I'd help her along, you know, and I'd say, you know, mom, it's not a biscuit, it's a cookie. Because, you know, I I guess she didn't know she would have problems, you know, sometimes she would say the wrong thing and, you know, okay, old lady, you know, what does she know? So... She explained, "Well, that's where I'm from. It's another country, and it's very far away. It's many, many miles, and we're gonna get on a plane, and it's gonna actually like take a day to get there. Well, what? No, why do we have to get on a plane? Why can't we drive? Well, there's an ocean in between, so we have to take a plane, and we have to go there. And this was like really huge. And what was really huge is that I got to miss three weeks of school, and that was awesome. And when I was a kid." You know, if you were doing something educational, then you had a valid excuse to miss school. And there's nothing more educational than traveling. So, okay, this is really big. So we go to England, and we go, and I meet relatives, and wow, everybody talks funny, and food is funny, and lots of weird things. And cool, there's buses that have two levels. You know, we don't have that in New York. And their train is not as dangerous. In those days in New York when you took the subway, your parents had a gun because you had to defend yourself. You were going to need it. So nobody had guns. Like, okay, you know, this is, this is a different when they drank tea all the time. Like, why are they so thirsty? You know, like every few minutes, you know, have a cuppa. Should we put it in the kettle? You know, like, again with the tea? Gosh, you people. You must spend all your time in the toilet. It was just really bizarre. But to my six-year-old mind, what I really remembered and what I really loved about this trip, was that my uncle Ernie lived in a toy store. It's so amazing, and he called it a shop. And I thought, why does he call it a shop? It's a store. It's a toy store. Uncle Ernie. No, here we call it a, we call it a shop. OK, so he lives in a shop. So nice. And, you know, to a six-year-old, what could be better than living in a toy shop? I mean, he let us play with all of the toys, and I'm sure my sister was there, but I don't remember her. I only remember me playing with my cousin Clinton and all of the toys, and it was amazing. And he had above his cash register, behind him is like a curtain. And behind the curtain, you go upstairs, and upstairs is his flat. And that's where they live, upstairs above the toy store. And there was a very spacious house above. But I just thought that was the coolest thing. You know, you finish work, and you don't have to drive home, and you don't have to fight traffic, and all these things that I remember hearing my dad talk about. You just go up the stairs. And as Uncle Ernie went up the stairs at night, at the end of the day, he had a toy monkey. And it was a furry monkey, like, that hung from, like, a trapeze above the the POS. And as he would go up the stairs, before opening the curtains, he would slap the back of the monkey, and it said, have a banana, munch, munch. you know, it was just something he did, a part of his routine. Every day he'd go home and he would tap the the monkey. So when we got home and I was back at PS 32 and Mrs. Chimino, my school teacher, said, your mom tells us about everywhere that you went while you were in Europe, that you went to England, France, Holland, Germany, Luxembourg, and Belgium. Yeah, I did all that. And And she tells us that you're going to share in the school auditorium about what your trip was. So think of something really special that you want to share and you're going to share. So my mom dressed me up in a safari outfit. I don't know why. Somehow in her mind, it made sense. So I had the pith hat and the khakis. And I've never been shy. So, okay, I get the microphone, and I'm in front of this whole school, and I said, you know, Europe was great. We got on a plane, and my dad taught at a school, so we got to go and travel, and my Uncle Ernie drove us around, and we went to his house, and he lives in a toy store, and he has a monkey that says, have a banana, munch, munch, and I Microphone back. I was done. And Mrs. Shimon said, no, 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 no. Didn't did you see the, the Tower of London? Did you see, you know, beef eaters? Did you go to Buckingham Palace? You did you do other things? Didn't you go to Paris? Didn't you see the Eiffel Tower? Cologne Cathedral? All of these things. You went to Amsterdam, you know? And I was like, uh uh. She's like, You don't know, no? Because Even though this was really big, what I remembered was the small, because that's what mattered to me. That was my take home from it. So sometimes the major things that happen in our life, we'd have no recollection of it unless we're reminded through memorials. We have the Bible to go back on and to read memorials. And often, as we're growing up in life, our parents maybe showed us pictures. And in those photographs, I saw that I was at Cologne Cathedral. I saw that I was at Buckingham Palace. And so while I didn't have those memories, my mother told me what the memories were. And now as an adult, I can go into the Rolodex in my head and remember all of these things that I saw because my mother reminded me of it through memorials, through re- showing me in the in the family photo album that these were the things that we did and I heard the stories. But in the moment that I had to share and sum it all up, my six-year-old mind only remembered have a banana, munch, munch. Because that's really just how it is when you're a little kid. And so... That brings me back to where we are here and what, that, what we're talking about, the woman and her situation. And to her, it's this major thing. And uh, the prophet apparently thought it was pretty important too because he met with her. I'm sure he could have met with other people who were more important, but he met with her. And he says something to her really important here. He says, what shall I do for you? That's a really good question. And I guess in her mind, she probably thought of the easiest route. Uh, Let me give you my payload details. Uh, maybe you can get out your checkbook. I got pay now. I take cash. You know, she was probably thinking maybe he would go talk to the creditor and say it's completely unjust that this widow have to pay her husband's debt. I mean, there's a lot of things he could have done. He did just you know dig trenches and make water without rain, and cause a treaty to happen and settled matters of state for four kingdoms. So I mean, he's got some ability here yet. What he says instead is, tell me, what do you have in your house? And she says, "Uh, your maidservant has nothing that's why I'm coming to you except um, for a jar of oil. And he says, go borrow vessels at large from your neighbors and stuff like that and get empty vessels. Don't just get a few, get a lot. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you, you and your sons, and you'll pour out into all these vessels, and you will set aside what is full. So she went, and she shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. And when the vessels were full, she said to her sons, bring me more. And they said to her, there are no more. So she went, and the oil stopped. And she told the man of God, and he said, go and sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Now to us, because we have this as a reference, this doesn't sound all that peculiar. But think about, from her perspective, what this might have sounded like. And when you ask somebody for something, really the last thing you're expecting from them is them to say, what do you have to give? But that's kind of the question that he has here. And this put me, I I like stories and I like remembering things like, you know, because for me, little memorials throughout life are what helps to drive something home. And I remember, again, back to my home church in New Orleans, that on a mission Sunday, a different Sunday than when the German um, missionary was there, People were coming forward and they were saying, you know, um, I have this much I'd like to pledge to whatever project it was that was going on at the time. I, I don't even know what it was. Something we were doing in Mexico. And one of Stephen's friends that had been a friend of his throughout his whole Christian history had walked with him and they had gone to Bible studies together and everything that they did, they always did together. He came and he said brother, I just want to tell you that one day when I have money, when I do something, when I get a raise, when I sell a house, or when I do something, I want to be able to bless you, and I want to be able to support you. And one of our fellow missionaries, Lucy, who's still to this day in Acapulco, she dives over there. I didn't even know she could do this, but Physically, just runs between Stephen and this guy Mike and says, Brother, open your wallet right now. Let me see what's inside. That's kind of rude, you know? So he reaches back and he takes out his wallet and he has a 20 inside. And he said, but I, I, I need this 20. And she said, now what's in your pocket? Show me what's in your pocket. And he had some mints and some gum and 50 cents. And she said, Brother... Why can't you give the 50 cents? I understand you have need of the 20 because you have whatever. You've got to put gas in your truck. You've got food that you need to buy, whatever. But why can't you give the 50 cents? And he said, because it's nothing. What's 50 cents? You can buy what? A soda with that? I mean, that's nothing. And she said, if you don't give when all you have is 50 cents, you're not going to give when what you have is 50,000. So until you learn how to take what you have and be able to give that, you're, not, you're never going to do any more. So that makes me think of this lady. Okay, we know that the repo man's already been to her house, he's already evaluated, and he didn't value that oil as being anything worth anything. Otherwise, he'd have put a sticker on it and said, I'm coming for that magic oil that magic oil that you can pour out and it just makes more oil. I'm going to come for that. But he didn't because it wasn't worth anything. It was just a common, everyday thing. And God loves to do something with the common, everyday things. The, the small denominator that we're not expecting because that's how he works because he's the God of the small. Like, like, let's think, a really great example is when he turns the water into wine, right? He goes and 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 he's at a wedding, and it's just a wedding. He's not there to do any great miracles. He's not there to preach. He's not there to lay hands on people. And his mother, and he's like, oh, man, what do I have to do with you? This isn't my party. What? And she's So sure that he's going to do something that she calls the steward. This isn't even her party, but she is Jewish. And I grew up Jewish, so I I know she can't help. She's got a medal. You know, this is what you do. So she calls the steward over and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Because she knows he's going to do something. (sighs) He looks around and he finds a common water pot common. It's not, we know it's not a wine bottle because the scriptures tell us if you put new wine into an old bottle, what happens? It bursts. So we know that's not it. He's not getting wine bottles together. He takes a common water pots, something small and everyday that no one noticed, and said bring those and fill those up. And then the miracle of the wine happened out of something common. And what about when he feeds the 5000? He has he's Jesus. He, he manna has, has happened before. I mean historically the Jews have heard about manna all their life. They've read about it just like we have. So it would have been nothing for him to go. Okay manna You know, let it just happen on the ground and everyone could have collected it and wow, that would have been cool and it would have been expected. That sounds good. Or what about come on down, they could have had the birds and he could have had, you know, anything like that could have happened, but that's not what he did. He took the thing that was the least value of the crowd because he's not even mentioned. They talk about 5,000 men and says and women and children. So he takes a little boy and takes his lunch. And he creates a miracle out of a little boy's lunch. Certainly he could have done anything else, but he's the God of the small. He did something big with something very small because that's just how God functions. Um, I was also like, it kind of occurred to me that this lady here, must have thought of herself as being poor because her situation was so desperate and because, well, she had no money. But it's not just money that makes us poor. We can be poor in many different areas. Okay, so like, little example. um, My best friend, Sue, is like a fashion icon. Like, man, she always looks good. Like, you never will catch her not looking fabulous. She has beautiful, you know, eyelashes, and her hair is slicked back, and the, she can put on her lipstick without looking. You know, you know the kind that does like that, and it's like perfect? She does that, and she always smells like roses. And people know when she's been in a room because they can smell her fragrance and know, oh, Sue Ebert has been here because she smells like roses. And she always looks fabulous. Even when she's going to the gym, she looks fabulous. She's got on the best looking suit. And like she's got a lot of like really cool vintage stuff. And like you look in her closet and it's like organized. Like everything is like folded and labeled and color coordinated and and, like the shoes, everything. It's really an, an amazing sight. And everybody knows her by her high standard of fashion. And then there's me. <laughs> and I have absolutely no value for my personal self for fashion whatsoever. I have three requirements. Is it clean? Does it fit? Is it black? That's it. I don't care I don't care about fashion. So I'm poor in the concept of fashion. And my friend Sue will tell me, Barbara, you don't just dress for you. You dress for other people because it's important. People want to identify with you as an icon. I said, they do. They identify with me wearing a black shirt <laughs> all the time. They say, you yeah, know, that's what I have. So we all have certain areas that we can really lack in. I have friends that on the outside, they sparkle and they look wonderful. And they have money and cars, and on the inside, they're crying and they're dying because their children are not following the Lord. And when they lay their head on the pillow at night, they would give every dime of everything they had if they could just have their children serve Jesus. And then there's people who battle depression. You tell them, Come on, snap out of it, just you know, be happy, it's a choice. But it's not when you have clinical depression, when you can't shake that morbid feeling that lingers over you, then you're emotionally bankrupt. You're emotionally poor. There's people that have no idea that other cultures exist. I used to be one. There's people that have no idea that other languages exist. When they hear somebody speak in another language, they think, oh, it's so stupid, I can't speak English. You know, like, but they speak other languages. So you can be culturally poor. You can have poverty in many different areas. It doesn't necessarily have to be financial. But God will always ask the same question with whatever it is that you lack, what is it that you have? Because he's the God of the small, he's the God of the little seed. What is it that you have? You may be poor in any of these areas, but he wants what it is that you have, that you take that, and you yield that over, and you allow that to help you to be able to rectify your circumstance. And then no matter what your circumstance is, that's the thing that you'll be remembered for because he's the God of the small. We know that the word tells us that unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. That means that the seed won't grow and sprout if it's in your hand. You can have that seed for years and years. In Mexico, we have beans that have been entombed for a thousand years. And you take that bean and you put it in the earth and you sprinkle water on it and life is gonna come forth from that bean. Even inside, dried up, dead looking bean, there's still life in there. If we plant it and we water it and we watch it grow. That's the message. That's the point. That God is the God of the big, but he's the God of the small. So take that thing in your life that you lack and that you have need of and you find what it is that you have in your house that you can pour out that will generate more and get you out of your circumstance. Amen? That's my message, that's it. (laughs) I told you I'm not Stephen. Stephen can talk on for an hour and a half and not even pay attention that any time has passed. And I have the attention span of 20 minutes. 18 minutes, my eyes are starting to close. It doesn't matter how dynamic somebody is, I can't take more than 20 minutes. I just can't. So that's my way. (laughs) I figure everyone's really the same, you know. So anyway, Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that in our lives that you might be a small voice. That sometimes when we pray and we say, God, I can't hear you, we have to be able to quiet down. And we have to turn off the noise and we have to focus. And we have to listen for that still, small voice. And we know that the sound of the abundance of rain is coming if we just listen to your voice just like another prophet, not Elisha, but Elijah. And he was waiting on that mountain, and he kept sending out that boy saying, tell me, do you see the rain cloud? Do you see the rain cloud? Do you see the rain cloud? And the deluge didn't come in the form of of a typhoon, and it didn't come in the form of a hurricane, and it didn't come in in any kind of a major tropical storm, but your presence came the size of a man's hand over the water, because you are the God of the small. We thank you, Lord, that it is through the small things that you cause great miracles. We thank you for using each and every one of us that we would look in our house and see what is it we have in our house that we can contribute to your kingdom for your glory. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.